Hey, morning, everyone. Uh, the reading this morning is from Psalm 147. So if you want to turn there in your Bible, I think it will also come up on the screen. Yep. All right, Psalm 147. Praise the Lord. How good is it to sing praises to our God? How pleasant and fitting to praise him. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the exiles of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He determines the number of stars and calls them each by name. Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding has no limit. The Lord sustains the humble, but casts the wicked to the ground. Sing to the Lord with grateful praise. Make music to our God on the harp. He covers the sky with clouds. He supplies the earth with rain and makes grass grow on the hills. He provides food for the cattle and for the young ravens when they call. His pleasure is not in the strength of the horse, nor his delight in the legs of the warrior. The Lord delights in those who fear him, who put their hope in his unfailing love. Extol the Lord Jerusalem. Praise your God, Zion. He strengthens the bars of your gates and blesses your people within you. He grants peace to your borders and satisfies you with the finest of wheat. He sends his command to the earth. His word runs swiftly. He spreads the snow like wool and scatters the frost like ashes. He hurls down his hail like pebbles. Who can withstand his icy blast? He sends his word and melts them. He stirs up his breezes and the waters flow. He has revealed his word to Jacob, his laws and decrees to Israel. He has done this for no other nation. They do not know his laws. Praise the Lord. I left my um, headset in there, sorry. <laughs> um, recently I made a discovery in my garden down the side of the house, there's these delicate wild strawberries that are growing. In past years, I'd seen them, always just walked past, thought them a little bit of a nice weed. But this year, I stopped and I tried them and I expected them to be sour and bitter because real strawberries are the proper ones you get in the supermarket, right? To my delight and surprise, I discovered little bundles of sweet joy all this time, they'd been there, little gifts from God, just waiting for me to try them and taste them, a gift from the Creator. When I tasted them, I recalled that in the Bible, God is first described after Creator as a gardener. In the opening chapters of Genesis, it's God who actually plants the garden in Eden into which he puts the man and the woman and gives them the job as gardeners but the Lord did that work first and so it was something as beautiful and delicate as sweet to the taste as a wild strawberry that made me thankful to God for placing things in my life for my sustenance and for my joy. They'd always been there, they'd been there before, why was I so blind to them? Because I suffer from supermarket syndrome. Everything I need is at the supermarket always. If I need anything, I just go there without thinking. And maybe that's why for me, it's hard to pray the Lord's Prayer 
all the way through. You remember the Lord's Prayer, don't you? A Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Okay, think for a moment of that prayer. Ask yourself of all the lines in that prayer, which is the line that you least pray voluntarily? That you feel that you need to least pray? If I'm honest, it's probably the line, give us today our daily bread. I mean, it's a good prayer, but I'm not sure actually that I often pray it, except when I pray the Lord's Prayer. But it doesn't voluntarily come because daily bread is always available for me at the supermarket, always. Except, of course, when it isn't. (laughs) Remember, last July... Sunday morning, Sterling Woolies was there. Sunday afternoon, it was not. Of course, a massive tragedy for those business owners and workers there. But a reminder that in a moment, in a moment, the supply line can be cut. What would it take to stop food suddenly being available to us all the time? Not much at all. A massive storm which wreaks havoc with our power grid. Um, hitting all the fuel pumps, no fuel, no transport of goods. It wouldn't take much, a freak storm. The truth is we are dependent on the Lord to keep those supply lines open. We are very fragile. And we need God to keep working in the world to sustain us. Now here's a different question. Why did God place his people in the land of Canaan and not some other land? Why Canaan? Bit left field, isn't it? Canaan, which became the land of Israel, is this very narrow strip of land between the sea and the desert to the east. Okay? And it connects the world empires at the time. So you've got Babylonia, Assyria, you've got the Hittite kingdom up there, Egypt. That means that if Assyria or Babylon, for example, wanted to wage war on Egypt, guess where they had to go? They couldn't go straight across because they'd have to go through the desert. They had to go round the ark, top down through Canaan. You had all these world empires moving through your land. Why would God choose that spot to put his people, which is so politically vulnerable? Well, there are several answers to that one, but one answer is to make them dependent upon him for their security. They needed to be dependent upon the Lord because the world's empires were moving through their territory. Just as in the same way that he placed them there so that they could be dependent upon him for their crops and harvest. So whilst we're thinking about geography, I want you now to have a look at the topography of Canaan, Israel, and the mountains and the rivers through the land. You'll notice the Jordan River flowing down from the Sea of Galilee, which is that top blob right up there, down into the Dead Sea, down there. And there's steep mountains on either side. Now, what that meant was, of course, that it's impossible to irrigate that country. It's not like Egypt. When you have the massive Nile flowing through and all the land's flat, you can just put out irrigation channels left, right and centre. But Israel, no, they couldn't irrigate, which meant that they were dependent upon the Lord every single season to send, him the, send the rains to make their pastures grow, their fruit, their grain crops. In other words, God's people there did not suffer supermarket syndrome. Get the point? Now, like most SA farmers up north, 
They are completely dependent upon the Lord for the rain and they look to the Lord to sustain their life. You know, last Sunday when I, um, you know, finished Sunday and then I think, oh, what am I doing next week? And I looked at Psalm 147. I forgot I was preaching on Psalm 147. Who thought that I'd be preaching on Psalm 147? That's right, I put together the service. Why did I put together that order of... Oh, and I thought, that's a really lame topic. I don't think it's really scratching where I itch, not scratching where anyone else's itch. And then I realised, because of supermarket syndrome, we are actually missing out. We miss out of enjoying this key part of our relationship with the Lord And then as well as that, the Lord's missing out because we aren't living a joyful life of thanksgiving to God for providing for our needs every single day. So today I want to recapture the doctrine of God sustaining goodness for us. And I want to recapture, therefore, praise for the God who sustains. Psalm 147 unpacks this doctrine, but it begins with application. Don't you love a sermon that just tells you what to do Straight up. Okay, here it is. Verse 1, praise the Lord. That's the application. It comes with a reflection. How good it is. How good it is to sing praises to our God. How pleasant and fitting to praise him. And then we keep getting reminded that praise is the first immediate application. Verse 7, it's peppered right through the psalm. Sing to the Lord with grateful hearts. Make music to our God on the harp. Uh, Verse 12, extol the Lord Jerusalem, praise your God, Zion. And then the final words of the psalm of the application just says, praise the Lord. It's not just a command. It's not just a way of saying, well, I'm thankful. It's a reminder. It's an exhortation to constantly delight in him and speak of how good he is to us. Now, if that feels forced, one reason why praise may not naturally flow, and think this is, is a consequence of supermarket syndrome. One reason is because, because of supermarket syndrome, we're not consciously dependent upon the Lord for providing us with everything that we need. And then the upshot, the negative upshot of that is that we can ask the question of ourselves often, does God really care? because we're not, we don't live in constant dependence upon him. We don't see him answering those prayers all the time. So we wonder, does he really care? If we're not consciously reliant upon the Lord for sustaining us and therefore aware of him when he does so, we ask that question, does God really care for me? And that's why the psalm next tells us what the Lord is like. So if you're wondering, does God really care? I want you to look at verses 2 to 6. This is what the Lord is like. Verse 2. What's he like? He he gathers back the exiles. Verse 3. What's the Lord like? He heals the brokenhearted. He binds up their wounds. One of my favourite Bible passages is Isaiah 40, which just speaks to this so well. Uh, If you read through the book of Isaiah, up to this point, chapters 1 to 39, the drumbeat message has been judgment, 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 coming upon that generation of Israelites and the previous generation because of their sins of idolatry and and taking God for granted and just being, you know, superficial in their worship. 
But then comes chapter 40, and, and that is written to a future generation of Israelites to Isaiah, to those who would be in exile in Babylon. And to them, God speaks a message of comfort. He says, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. I love that. And proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed and that her sin has been paid for. She's been forgiven for all that she's done. You see, he, he brings the exiles back. The Lord binds up their wounds. Um, judgment that the Lord may inflict upon his people, it's not his final word. And this is precisely the nature of Jesus, Isaiah 42, a prophecy of Jesus. Here is my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will, and then a bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Why will he not do that? Because he cares. He cares so deeply and personally. That is what God is like. Now maybe you are there and you're doubting. You're, you're saying to yourself, well, there's a lot of people in the world, aren't there? 7.8 billion people at the moment. I'm only one. How does God care for me? And does he? How could he? Well, good point, but let's take it up a notch, shall we? Let's make the odds more tricky. Think of the stars, will you, for a moment. The nearest star to the sun is Proxima Centauri. If you travelled at the speed of light, it would take you 4.2 years to get to the nearest star closest to us to the sun. And of course, our galaxy, the Milky Way, is so vast that if you did travel at the speed of light, it would take you 100,000 years to cross it. And we think, well, with distances that vast to us, of course, there can't be that many stars, can there? I mean, how many stars are there? Well, the best estimates are that within the Milky Way itself, there are 100 billion stars. The nearest one is 4.2 light years from the sun, but there's 100 billion in our galaxy. But the, of course, the Milky Way is only one galaxy of an estimated 200 billion galaxies in the observable universe, not counting the, the universe that they haven't been able to see yet. Meaning that the number of observable stars in the night sky is 200 billion trillion. That is a two with 21 zeros on the end, all right? Now, we wonder, with 7.8 billion people, paltry number, could God care for me? Look at verse 4. The Lord doesn't just know the number of stars. He determines the number of stars. And get this, he calls them each by name. Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding has no limit. So then the Lord cares for everyone, right? Well, as is often the case in the Bible, the answer is both yes and no. Verse 6, no in that the Lord sustains the humble but casts the wicked to the ground. But yes, in that nevertheless, the Lord still exercises his sustaining goodness to all. Verse 8, he covers the sky with clouds. He supplies the earth with rain. He makes grass grow on the hills. And so providing rain to make the grass grow, verse 8, he provides food for the cattle. And when you think about that, from cattle we get milk and meat. 
So he is caring for us by providing the grass to grow for the cattle. He provides food for the cattle and even for the young ravens when they call. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with Jewish food laws. It's okay if you're not. But raven was not on their dish of what was acceptable to them. Um, from my back window where I write and do work, I see ravens, I see the magpies, I see the crows. Crows are a type of raven. And uh, when the Lord sends rain, the worms come out and he feeds them. And on our manicured lawn, the... That's a generous interpretation. The, the magpies and the crows have a feast and they squawk and chortle with delight. Job 38. Who provides food for the raven when its young cry out to God and wonder about for a lack of food? It's the Lord speaking here. He's saying, well, I do. So learn the lesson, Matthew 26. Look at the birds of the air, says Jesus. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Here's the point. Are you not much more valuable than they? If he cares for them, of course he cares for you, as he does for all of his creation. You know, in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, in Matthew 5, when Jesus tells us we must be like God, and he moves in categories through to the maximal point of being perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. But what does that look like? And he says, well, it's to love your enemies. And then he says, do it because God your Father does it. That's what the Lord is like. He says, your Father in heaven causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. So Jesus' point was, if the Father loves his enemies, so you should as well. The point is, the Lord God is a God of generosity. He has sustaining goodness for all. Psalm 145, the eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food at their proper time. You open your hand, and you satisfy the desire of every living thing. And it's true, it blows my mind that with the world's population increasing, it's going to double in my lifetime. In my one human lifetime, 1970, to suppose 19, to 2050, who knows, if I pop off the perch at 80. All right, so, all right suppose that. Uh, that means in one lifetime, the population of the world will have doubled, 4 billion to 8 billion. That's staggering when you think about it. It took 1,800 years to get to 1 billion. In my lifetime, it's going to go from 4 to 8. It blows my mind when I think about the needs of the world that somehow God keeps providing enough food for everyone. Enough food is produced. It's this matter of supply and, and you know, human sin which stops it getting to people, but enough food is produced. Isn't that amazing? It's, it's mind-boggling. So the Lord shows his sustaining goodness for all. But then the Lord shows his unique and special goodness to his people, those who relationally belong to him. If you cast your eyes down, verses 12 to 20, what stands out is all the Lord's actions, all the, Lord's, the things that the Lord does for his people. He strengthens, he grants, he sends, 
He spreads, he hurls, he sends, he has revealed, he has done this for no other people. This is God's particular action and goodness to those who are his. Now, at the time of this psalm being written, it was after the exiles, the exiles had come back, and the focus of the Lord's attention at that point in salvation history was Jerusalem. It was the epicenter of his work. That's where the kingdom of God was focused at that particular point in salvation history. We live after that time. Jerusalem is no longer the epicenter of God's kingdom. Indeed, Jesus said to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. All that stuff in the Old Testament was only a, a picture pointing to the reality, the greater reality. Now the kingdom of God has been um, sort of released from its geographical mooring at Jerusalem. It is all places where God lives by his spirit and that means the hearts and minds of everyone who has come to God through him. But what comes out here is that the Lord is actively working to sustain his children in a hostile world. At that time, what it meant was he strengthened Jerusalem to withstand attack. He also headed off attack by granting peace at their borders. And then he would sustain them during attack by providing the city with food. This is the Lord sustaining his people in a hostile world. Now, for us, the Lord's work is even more impressive because he delivers us from the evil one. And all the actions we see the Lord doing here in this psalm for his people before Christ, we can translate into his active, ongoing, sustaining work that he does for us after Christ, even if we're not aware from, of it. And I'm looking forward to the day when we get to glory and we'll be able to look back kind of on video preview and then see how the Lord answered prayers, he headed off attack, he was good to us when we weren't aware of it, all the zillion of times that he sustained us to get us there. He's directing all his resources, is the point of the psalm, to defending and protecting his children. Verse 15, he sends his command to the earth and his word runs swiftly. So he spreads the snow like wool, he scatters the frost like ashes on the mountains, he hurls down his hail like pebbles. Who can withstand his icy blast? Certainly not the Philistines when they got it. He sends his word and melts them. He stirs up his breezes, the waters flow. We don't see what he does to protect and care for us. We don't see the spiritual attacks he's fending off or he's strengthening us for or he's pushing us to pray so that we're involved in the process or the attacks that he is defeating. But that does not mean he's not doing it. Just as he fought for us at the cross, he overcome our greatest attacks. We didn't see it. You know, no one saw it. No one saw it except the man beside him, but he only saw a part of it. But no one saw that there he was defeating sin, the curse of sin, which no longer bars us from his blessing, no longer stops us walking with him. He defeated Satan by taking away his power to condemn. He defeated death by going through and coming out the other side and promising the same for everyone who believes in him. He defeats the judgment after death by then descending but after he died, descending to the dead, setting free the righteous from where they were waiting for him. 
Just as the Lord fought for us there, he's still working to sustain us, to present us faultless and blameless before him on the day of Christ. Praise God. Praise God. What a wonderful Lord. What's the application? Well, three things. We need to bring ourselves down. Then we can secondly lift him up. And then we come to him. So first of all, we need to bring ourselves down. In verse 6, we read that the chief characteristic which distinguishes the wicked whom the Lord will cast down from those whom he doesn't is not their performance. It's not even their goodness. The chief characteristic which distinguishes those the Lord blesses from the wicked is their humility. The Lord sustains the humble but cast the wicked to the ground. And this is helpful. One way to remain humble before the Lord is to cultivate ways of being aware of how he's sustaining you and to practice thanksgiving often. Uh, This week as I was at home, um, I was sitting there, something was really churning me up inside. It had not just to settle your mind, nothing to do with anyone in this room, okay? So I wasn't thinking of you, thinking, oh, you know, I wasn't, so just to to be at peace, all right? Um, But anyway, I was getting really churned up and I looked out of the window uh, to the plum tree where the first time in five years we've had fruit. We planted it when we moved in. It's taken five years. But the plums are ripe. And I got up and I walked out and as I picked one and sank my teeth into its juicy flesh and felt the plum juice sort of swirling within my mouth, suddenly the thing that I was felt churning up about just seemed really stupid and really inconsequential and really trivial. Suddenly I was reminded of God's wonderful sustaining goodness these little gifts that he gives me in my life. And it was just there. And I realised I was foolish. And my foolishness actually stopped me from being thankful to the Lord when I was in the study. I'm glad he brought me out. So firstly, bring yourself down. Not to the level of a worm, right? We're not worms. Bring yourself down to the real level of realising, yes, we're not worms, but we are creatures Uh, We're the highest creature, yes, um, but we're still creatures. We are dependent upon the Lord. That's our level. Do that, and then you have right humility because you acknowledge I'm a creature, the Lord is not, he's looking after me. And we realise we're not God because, well, he's looking after me. Because verse 10, guess what? His pleasure is not in the strength of a horse, nor his delight in the legs of a warrior. He doesn't delight in human strength in the things that we do. What does the Lord delight in? The Lord delights in those who understand where they sit in relation to him. The Lord delights not in the apex predator of the human chain, right? The strength of uh, the legs of a warrior. He delights in those who acknowledge that he's up there those who fear him, who put his hope in their unfailing love. By bringing ourselves down, we see that true strength lies not in ourselves, but in the Lord, in his unfailing love. That's where strength lies. Psalm 145 just 
two Psalms before, the Lord upholds all who fall and lifts up all who are bowed down. You see, by bringing ourselves down, not only does God do a wonderful work in us, fill us with joy, suddenly we're able to lift him up. That's the obvious application. We are to praise him. You can't praise him if you think that you're on the top. You have to come down first, but when you do so, then you can lift him up. We are to praise him. The psalm says we're to extol him, which is not a word we use often. It means to speak highly of his virtues, to speak how wonderful he is. Um, in fact, I think it's rather cool that when Psalm 147 says praise is exactly the right response to God for, for sustaining all things, that the next psalm, Psalm 148, calls on everything in all of creation to join in praising God Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures, the whales. Praise God, whales. And all ocean depths, you things that move on the bottom. Praise God. <laughs> Lightning and hail, snow and clouds, stormy winds that do his bidding. You're up in the plain, you see the storms go past. Praise God, you little bits of sleet out there. You mountains and all you hills, you fruit trees, nectarines, plums, cherries, apricots, yes! They lift their hands up, don't they? All cedars, wild animals and all cattle, small creatures and flying birds. Isn't this interesting? It's saying that somehow, in some way that we don't understand, the creation has a relationship with the Lord. Um, not the same as ours, but there is a dependence which conscious... Uh, animate creation is aware of. Praise God. Kings of the earth and all nations, you princes and all rulers on the earth, young men and women, old men and children. All of creation is called to praise the Lord. There is no part of creation which isn't fitting uh, for them to praise the Lord. The psalm begins, his angels, you, his heavenly host, the sun, moon and stars, praise the Lord. The highest heavens, the waters above the skies and everything else. This is what life is about. Living in such thankful dependence that you pray, praise just comes out. There's a right awareness, you see, that supermarket syndrome robs us of. We can forget that everything that exists exists by God's word and more than that, we can go further, it is sustained by Jesus' word. The New Testament sharpens the focus. It gives us more information Hebrews chapter 1, the sun is the radiance, speaking of Jesus, the son of God, is the radiance of God's glory. He is the exact representation of God's being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Now, John, in John's gospel, says everything was created through him. There is nothing that has been made that was not made without him. Jesus is the word of God. When God spoke the world into existence, let there be light. Jesus was that eternal word of God through which everything came into existence. But this says something else. It says not only was Jesus there involved in the creation of the world, but he is actively working to sustain it. The next breath you draw can only come because Jesus enables you to. The next drink you have is there because of Jesus' provision. Now, you remember that and it gives you joy and it gives the Lord 
praise for his constant good and loving care. And that's helpful in living out our relationship with him. I wonder if you've been reluctant to involve God in your life. I'm not talking about people who say, oh, I'm not a Christian yet. You might say, yes, I'm, I'm a believer. But have you been reluctant to involve the Lord in your life as you walk through life? Have you been walking with him? Jesus calls us to do it. He is the same tender Lord who cares for all, but especially for his people. He sustains us. And the best thing about us is that he tells us, he, he, he gives his word to those who believe. In Psalm 147, he only gave it to Israel. Well, he's now telling every, uh, everyone else, uh, including us, he gives us his word. Jesus says this and his word goes out, doesn't it? Come to me, Jesus says, all you who are weary and burdened in your life. Is that you? Do you feel a weariness, deep weariness? Are you burdened? Come to me, says Jesus, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. So at the time, of course, the Pharisees were placing a huge yoke. A yoke is that wooden beam that goes across the, the shoulders of an ox or maybe a person as they carry, um, pull a load or carry buckets. Take my yoke upon me, not theirs, but mine, and learn from me because I'm gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke, it's easy, and my burden is light. He binds up the brokenhearted. And if any of us have faith like a bruised reed or a smouldering wick, Jesus says he, he will not break us. He, he won't snuff us out. He calls us to come to him. Let's do it. Our Father in heaven, we praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ, the agent of creation, the sustainer of all life. We acknowledge our dependence upon you. We can only exist because you will it. We can only keep existing because Jesus enables it. Father, forgive us for supermarket syndrome that we've been active participants in which stop us praising you, which make us wonder whether you care for us, whereas it's true you do. Father, we praise you. We praise you. You are the God who sustains all life and we praise you for sustaining ours. You are the God who gives life. We praise you for giving it to us. We praise you, Heavenly Father, for working in ways, silent ways, um, quiet ways, invisible ways that we haven't been aware of, but we know you've been doing. Our loving and gracious Father, increase our sense of dependence on you that we would praise you. May today be a day when we walk through life thankful and giving you the right honour and glory. We praise you that we can do it through your Son, and we praise you that he is one who wants to bind up the brokenhearted. We pray for any here who are really struggling. Have mercy on them in their lives. Have mercy. Bind their hearts up. Fill them with joy. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.